It's my great joy this morning to invite you to open your copy of God's perfect and precious word to 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapters 1 and 2 this morning. Now, I know you just sat down, but I'm going to ask you to stand back up for the re- in reverence of reading of the perfect word of our sovereign God. I'm just going to read one verse, and it's from 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 2. And then pray for God's mercy as we study together this morning. There is none holy like the Lord. For there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we come before you this morning. Our rock. Creator. Redeemer. The one who has a kingdom that knows no end. And Lord, I pray that you would help communicate to us today. Your love and your power and your authority and the freedom that it is to bring in our lives. Oh Lord, we cannot live in bondage in your name. For you have come to give us freedom. Now and forevermore. And we thank you for it in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Recently, we've begun studying Exodus. And in the first few chapters of Exodus, we see that the, the setting is a political crisis. It's a huge one. Israel, God's people, are in slavery in Egypt, and they are, they are multiplying in ways that make the king of Egypt terrified. He looks out at these slaves and says, there are too many of them. We have to do something about it lest they turn on us. And he has a a plan to work them to death and a plan to kill them as soon as they're born, a plan to throw them in the Nile. And yet all of those plans are thwarted. And the key figures that, that rise up in the telling of the story are women. First of all, Hebrew midwives who... Do not kill the babies like they were told. And then, all of it, the answer to this problem of huge proportions, this national crisis, this geopolitical problem, the answer to it is a baby. A baby named Moses. And not only do the Hebrew midwives not follow what the king of Egypt said, but his mother figures a way to save his life. His sister is involved in saving his life. And then the providential irony of God, even the king of Egypt, Pharaoh's own daughter, is involved in preserving his life. Then we open up 1 Samuel. And 1 Samuel begins at the time of the judges. And it's a place, of, it's a time of political crisis among the people. There, is, there are major cultural shifts happening within the people of Israel. And Judges 21-25 gives us a sense of this. It's the very last verse in Judges, and it says, In those days, everyone did what was right in their own eyes, for there was no king in Israel. So there's this sense in which things are not as they need to be. It is a chaotic time. And in response, in the early chapters of 1 Samuel, they call our attention to the way God is going to answer that problem. And guess what? It's a humble woman 
who longs to have a baby. Hannah, her name means favored one. She's living in the, the, the backwater hill country of Ephraim. And how in the world is a baby born to this woman going to be the answer to this huge crisis among the people? You know, it seems as though we can pick up on a pattern that God keeps providing a child who will meet the challenge of the people. In fact, ever since in Genesis 3.15, after the fall into sin, there was a promise that a seed born of woman will crush the head of the serpent. This idea of God providing a child keeps reappearing. But what could this woman, what could Hannah have to do with this world and history shaping political crisis? The better question would be this. How is God going to use this woman, Hannah, this humble woman, to meet the challenge of His people, to shape the history of His people? That's an important question. I think in thinking about what's going on here with Hannah and how she responds, there is much for us to learn about what really matters. A few years ago on Mother's Day, I preached a sermon called The Real Proverbs 31 Woman. I had this sense in talking to people that a lot of women just heard the phrase Proverbs 31 and they felt a sense of tightness like, oh no, here we go again. And yet the problem is not Proverbs 31. The problem is the way they were hearing or the way they were being taught what was going on there. That Proverbs 31 is not a to-do list. Proverbs 31 is not a job description by which you take everything that it describes and say, okay, I've got to do that every day. If you do that, you will be in bondage and despair. But that's not what's going on there. It's a trajectory of what? Characteristics of a woman who fears the Lord. It is a reminder that you need Christ and that in Christ, fearing the Lord, your life can be ordered in such a way where you can live sacrificially like it calls us to. But you know, I've noticed with women in general that oftentimes there are all of these expectations put upon women, many of them way beyond what the Bible is calling us to say, and a lot of cultural expectations that have nothing to do with the Bible. And a lot of women, a lot of moms, feel like failures because they're not living up to these arbitrary standards, which God never gave. A lot of women are told, you know, if you're going to be a good mom, there's there's only one way to do this and one way to do this. And you've got to feed your children this kind of thing. You've got to, you've got to put them to bed in this kind of way. And you've, you've got to school them in this kind of way. And yet all of that is a failure to focus on what really matters most. In Hannah's life, we see the kinds of things that really matter. And the first one we see is a call to suffer in the right direction. As the story picks up in 1 Samuel, this woman, Hannah, is not in a good place. She's very full of pain and heartache, and, and she's depressed, and, and there is, is almost a sense of, of despair within her. See, she longed to be a mom, but that had not happened. 
And by the way, the same is true for some here today. And lest you think that, that your, your struggle with that and pain with that is somehow uh, less than what you should be, notice the example of Hannah here. This is a difficult day on Mother's Day for many facing those types of situations and also for those who perhaps you've lost your mother in recent days or perhaps you had a child that's no longer here. I prayed this morning for all in those types of situations that God would bring the comfort that only He can bring. You see, Hannah longed to be a mom, but it hadn't happened. Verse 5 tells us the Lord had closed her womb. Hannah's heartache was made all the more difficult, though, because of her particular situation. First of all, the cultural expectation on having children, on having a son, was far greater than anything we know today. And then secondly, that Hannah was not the only wife of Elkanah. It's not according to God's design. It always brings the kinds of problems that we see in the text today. But that's the situation she found herself in. And the reason that was a particular difficult situation is the other wife, Paniah, had many children. So here Hannah finds herself. Now if she knows the biblical story well, and it seems that she does, she's reminded of Sarah, Rebecca, and Rachel. And that God keeps acting in situations like this often. But, but here is a situation in which not only was this the fact that, that the other wife had had many children, that, that she had had none. The, text, the Bible tells us in chapter 1, verse 5, that, that Elkanah loved her. It seemed he favored her. The hand of the favored one was favored by Elkanah. And, and he says to her at one point, Am I not more to you than ten sons? And yet, Paniah was reminding her consistently that she had not borne any children. And the text tells us that this was particularly the case in the once-a-year trek to Shiloh where the people gathered to worship in what was probably a permanent tabernacle setting. And in those instances, she would especially remind her, and by the way, prideful people always attempt to use spirituality as a weapon against others. This is what's going on here. Oh, not only do you not have any children, do you understand what God has given me and what you don't have? She mocked Hannah, the text tells us. She would not let her forget it. And she would do it particularly at the time of worship. The text tells us that, that they are at Shiloh and, and, and Hannah is found weeping and refusing to eat. And Elkanah comes to her and says, why are you so down? And, 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 and he says, am I not more to you than ten sons, as I said earlier? But we find Hannah in the temple praying. And she's crying out to God, give your servant a son. I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life. And there's a priest that's listening or watching her. And he's a not-so-impressive priest named Eli with not-so-impressive sons. And he looks at her and he sees her mouth moving. He doesn't hear any words. And, and evidently, the, the spiritual declension was so great, it was not often that people were praying in the tabernacle area. And so he accuses her of being drunk. 
she explains that she's not drunk at all, that she's crying out to the Lord for this very reason. And as the story unfolds, there's a point where Hannah has a baby. Calls him Samuel, heard by God. Declares that God had heard her prayer. And so we pick up in chapter 1, verse 24. It says, and when she had weaned him, he's probably about three years old at this time for weaning, she, she took him up with her, along with her a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, a skin of wine, and she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young, and they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli, and she said, O oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord. Now that's a small case L. It's a term of respect. She's referring to Eli the priest here, not God. But then she says this, I am the woman who was standing here in your presence praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord, Yahweh, has granted me my petition that I made to Him. Therefore, I have lent Him to the Lord, or given Him to the Lord. As long as He lives, He is lent to the Lord. And then it says, and he worshiped the Lord there. Now that's speaking uh, as if it's already happened. Samuel is going to worship the Lord there as he, as he trains, but, 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 but not at this time. But, but think about this. How hard this must have been. You pray for this child, and this child is finally here. And there is a uniqueness to her situation. Now, she was offering him to the Lord and there was a Nazarite vow and all these sorts of things. So there are ways in which this situation is not like ours, but there is a way in which this situation is a lot like ours. In this sense, that what we should all want is that the children that God gives us would give their lives to the Lord. Whatever that means. Oftentimes parents say they want that. And then their child makes choices to sacrifice in the Lord's name. And it's like, oh no, don't do that. But that's not how we should be. The child is not here for us or even for themselves. Ultimately, these image bearers are entrusted with us to point to Christ that they may serve the Lord. Now, I want to be clear. It's not that all who ask of God will be given a child. That's not the point being made here at all. Uh, don't, don't hear that in any sense. The point is not that everyone who prays will be given a child. We know that's not the case. The point, though, is that God is in control. Not us. You see, if the idea was if I pray the right prayer and do the right thing, I can get God to give me the child, then we would be in control. But that's not the point at all. The point is that God's in control. That He can be trusted no matter what. And that there's always hope. We never have to get to the level of hopelessness in His name. And what we find here in Hannah's life that is so instructive for all of us, but here I offer it this morning, this mom to the moms here, the grandmoms here. The call to suffer in the right direction. It's another way of speaking of her humility. 
She was in a difficult situation. What we find her doing is not even lashing back at Peninnah. What we find her doing is praying. We find her praying before she has a child. We find her praying after she has a child. You see, the suffering was real. The faith doesn't make her to say, what's suffering? I don't, uh, it's, nothing's any big deal. No, absolutely not. But we are called to suffer in the right direction. You know, I often talk to parents down through the years who one of the parents finds themselves in a situation where their health has gone a difficult direction. And it's very hard because you think all the things you want to do with your kids and for your kids and, and now your health is in a situation you feel like, man, I wish I could just get my health back so then I could make a difference in my kid's life. Oftentimes, the most important difference that we make in our children's life is when we suffer in the right direction. When they see the fact That suffering in our life does not make us hopeless. It's powerful. Very powerful. But I also want you to see this. When we get to chapter 2, we have this prayer of thanksgiving, this psalm of response to the faithfulness of God. And the first thing that we see in this prayer is, is the call to rejoice in the rock. Remember, this is a a public prayer that she's offering after the child has been offered to Eli. Chapter 2, verse 1, And Hannah prayed and said, My heart, my inner being, exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. Horn there is an animal's horn. and An animal would lift its head up to show his power and his strength. Or perhaps he's gored the enemy and lifts his head up to declare victory. She says, my horn, my strength is exalted. How? In the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. Do you see how personal this is? My and I four times. She's responding to the reality of her experience. That, that last phrase about her mouth would most literally be translated, my mouth is wide against my enemies. There's a sense in which she understands the way in her weakness the Lord has strengthened her. But note that word horn. It shows up again in verse 10. In verse 10 it says, The Lord will exalt the horn of His anointed of his Messiah. You see, that's at the beginning and the end, and it's saying that everything in this uh, prayer of thanksgiving, this psalm of uh, response to the faithfulness of God, is about the power of God. The power of God on display in the life of Hannah, and ultimately the power of God on display in the one to whom Hannah's life and Samuel's life points, the horn of salvation raised up, God's Messiah, Jesus. But notice in verses 2 and 3, she goes on to talk about this, this, this rock, this, this God who is like this, this God who is like no other. This is the basis of her thankfulness in uh, verses 2 and 3. 
There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Then verse 3, Talk no more so very proudly, meaning in His sight. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by Him actions are weighed. Now, now, when we're to think about what's happening here, this is a rapid-fire declaration of what God is like. So we don't want to spend a bunch of time parsing these things out, but we want to feel the weight of what she's saying. A.W. Tozer said that the most important thing about you is what you think about God. We see here what Hannah thinks about God. She thinks God is holy. There is none holy like the Lord. Uh, Holiness set apart, uh, independent, all-sufficient, not dependent upon anything else in the created order. There is no rock like our God. God is all-powerful. This this image of rock shows up again and again in Deuteronomy 32-31. For their rock is not like our rock. This speaks to God's power, God's strength, the fact that God can't be moved. And then that God is all-knowing. For the Lord is a God of knowledge. And by Him, actions are weighed, meaning God is just. God is all-knowing. He knows the end from the beginning and the beginning from the end. And because God is holy, and because God has all knowledge, then God Himself defines justice. God is just. What does Hannah think about God? He's holy, He's all-powerful, He's all-knowing, and He's just. Consider the way Hannah thinks theologically about everything in her life. When she was without a child, she's turning to God. She's thinking about it theologically. When she is with child, she's turning to God and thinking about it in light of who He is. Our beliefs and our experiences are not to be separated and they are not to be put in compartments They are to be lived out. You know, one of the great blessings in my own home is I know the countless conversations that Judy has with our children in just the everydayness that always go back to God. I hear about them. There's a a power in that. She's around them more than I am. She teaches them through that that everything ultimately is about God. So we find Hannah here go from celebrating who God is, this rock, to celebrating what God does. In verses 4-8, through show strength from weakness. Now, what's going on here is an explanation of how God turns the world upside down. In other words, if someone tries to make sense of the world apart from God, they draw all kinds of conclusions. But when God is rightly known and understood, those conclusions are turned on their head. So what is valued apart from God is rejected in God. So you see like the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, or the meek shall inherit the earth. God turns the wisdom of the world upside down. And that's her declaration here. And it's, it's very indicative of what she knows. For instance, uh, Israel, this 
this people who didn't have any weapons ultimately is delivered and the Egyptian army, the strongest fighting force in the world, is dead in the water. Right? This is what God does. The people who serve God were more powerful in the end than the people who seemed powerful. Or later on when we see this guy named David go up against a giant named Goliath. And it seems like we see who the, got the power here, but it's not reality. God is involved in showing strength from what appears as weakness. Look at verses 4 and 5. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. In other words, the weak made strong. Verse 5. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The hungry made full. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn, is weak, falling, languishing. The barren made complete. Do you see how this is flipping everything? Weak made strong. Hungry made full, barren made complete. When it says here the, the one who was barren is born seven, doesn't mean that she bore seven children. Actually, Hannah bore six children, but seven is used here symbolically, a number that denoted completeness. In other words, God provided her all that she needed. But notice this the woman who had many children but was full of pride, can be described as weak, falling, languishing, forlorn. You see, the issue is not that God promises a mechanical reversal of fortunes in every instance. And the, the suggestion here is not that being feeble, hungry, and barren are inherently noble and virtuous. And it's not that being strong, full, or having many children are inherently problematic or sinful. You can have all of those things and be humble and magnify God. You can be feeble, hungry, and barren and be prideful and dishonor God. But the point is that what the world tends to value to draw conclusions is not what God does. And God is often working among those who seem to cast off of the world to show himself strong. The point is that God can turn the world upside down to accomplish his purpose, to bless his people. And what God values is not what the world values. Primarily, faithful humility. Philippians Chapter 4, verses 11-13 through 13, is getting at this very kind of thing. Paul says, Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Now the focus of that verse are the things of neediness. He can be needy through Christ who strengthens Him. It is ultimately about living with humility in the sight of God and trusting God. Look at verses 6-8. through We see here three things that it is God who can do. 
verse 6. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. It's God who brings death and makes alive. Verse 7. The Lord makes poor, the, the Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and exalts. It's God who sends poverty and wealth. Verse 8. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts up the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them He has set the world. Meaning, He is creator. He is sustainer of everything. All things are dependent upon Him. So it's God who brings death and makes alive. It is God who sends poverty and wealth. It is God who raises the poor from the dust. Or as 1 Peter 5, 5 through 6 puts it, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at proper times He may exalt you. You see, ultimately, all of these things will be turned around. But not necessarily here and now. But we know that God gives grace to the humble. Now, think about what he's saying here. It's important to latch on to. Peninnah seemed to be the one that was fruitful, and in reality, she was barren. Hannah seemed to be the one who was barren, but in reality, she was fruitful. You see, the point being made here is that even though Pania had many children, she was not fruitful because she was full of pride. And that Hannah, even if she had never had any children, would indeed be fruitful. That's the larger point. The trust in God. What God is doing. Now God deemed for her to have a child that would change the direction of the nation. But what is honored is her humility. And that leads us to verses 9-10. through And it's a call to live for Christ's kingdom. Now, this happens a lot of times in the Old Testament. Her prayer here stretches beyond the immediate circumstance and ultimately lands on what God is really doing through all of this. It stretches beyond what she is facing to what God is ultimately doing. Look with me at verse 9. He will guard the feet of His faithful ones. But the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, the not faithful ones. For not by might shall a man prevail. You see, Christ is the right side of history. You hear a lot of talk today about trying to be on the right side of history. But you see, that cannot be evaluated until history is consummated. And Christ is always on the right side of history. That means that if you're going to be on the right side of history, today you're going to have to identify yourselves with Christ in ways that will be rejected by many of those around you. That's just necessary. That's the only way to be on the right side of history. But we know that He is a God that 
honors those who are humble. The ultimate winners are those who are humble by faith. What he calls here his faithful ones. You see, human might will not have the last word. So we have to reverse our thinking and not think, if I just had a little more power, if I just had a little more, then my life could really matter. No. Let me direct you to a nondescript woman named Hannah from a backwater town in the hill country of Ephraim. She wasn't going to be on the front pages of any papers. And yet, this humble servant is a name that we're talking about this very morning. Look at verse 10. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them He will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He's the King. He will give strength to His King. That is God's King. And exalt the horn of His anointed. That is God's Messiah. You see, her prayer extends out beyond her circumstances, but it's reflective of her circumstances. Her prayer extends out to another child who who will be supernaturally placed in the womb of a woman and who will totally reverse the fortunes of all of His people. His name is Jesus. Do you see that? By the way, the priesthood ends up taken away from unfaithful Eli and given to Samuel, who becomes the priest and prophet and judge among the people. Eli had no idea he was, tra- cha- he was training the very one who would take his place as he was rejected for his unfaithfulness, him and his children, but that's what God was doing. And and. In the meantime, the people start saying, we need a king. And they cry out for a king. We need a king like the other nations. And so they get one, and his name is Saul. And he's unfaithful. But then there's one name, David. And in Psalm, in 2 Samuel, chapter 22, these are really one book. David declares this. The Lord is my rock and my fortress, and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield, and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold, my refuge, my Savior. You shall save me from violence. David calls out to the one who is the rock, the one who is the horn of salvation, the one who would sit on the throne of David forever and ever. But then we find Mary. And we find Mary, while she is pregnant with Jesus, and she lifts up this poetic song, this prayer that is similar to the one we're considering uh, this morning. And she, like Hannah, talks about this one who will reverse the fortunes. In Luke 1, 51-53, it says, He has shown strength with His arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich He has sent away empty. And then Zechariah. John the Baptist is, is born and Zechariah cries out, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited and redeemed His people 
and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Do you see it? All of these events were happening in a sequence that ultimately was pointing to Christ. And so we have Hannah here, in the best of her ability to understand, having some sense of what God is doing, and yet we stand on this side of the cross of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. And we know this is a God like this, who there is a child born who is the horn of salvation, who delivers His people. How could we be anything but humble? Moms, don't listen to the noise. Don't take on the bondage that others might want to keep on you. As though all kinds of secondary preferential things are what really matters. And try to live up to the standards of the latest parenting fad or the latest idea that somebody else has. That's not what really matters. Don't let anybody tell you, oh, oh, what matters most is that you buy this food. What matters most is they go to this school or don't go to that school. And what matters most is that, that, that you do this with them when they're asleep and this with them. And what matters most is none of that. Oh, what matters the most affects your thoughts about all kinds of things. But what matters most is to be a humble mom or a humble grandma with faith in the sight of a holy God so they can see you suffer in the right direction and they can see you rejoice in the rock no matter what and they can see you show strength from weakness and that they see you live for Christ's kingdom. That's what really matters. And that's what transforms eternity. And it can start in your home. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much for your perfect and precious word. I thank you so much for a horn of salvation raised up for us. I thank you now and forever for your grace. May we be those who humble ourselves in your sight, knowing that in proper time, by your grace, we will be exalted. In Christ's name we pray, amen.